Hello there and welcome into another edition of the Intersection Podcast with conversation highlights from the Meeting House on Faith Radio about a variety of topics including news, information, and lifestyles approached from a Christian worldview perspective. On this special edition of the Intersection, I will be sharing material from my coverage of the top 10 topics of 2022 impacting the Christian community. You will be hearing from Meeting House guests from throughout the previous year offering comments on these relevant topics. Let's begin with topic number 10. Even though it has been a distinct trend for a number of years, the furtherance of a system of global governance became a greater concern through the pandemic period as influential economic and political leaders used COVID as a means to consolidate power and to use fear to cause people to surrender their security. This system of government is a foreshadowing of an all-encompassing one-world government that will be established during the tribulation period, headed by a leader known as the Antichrist, who will establish an economic, political, and religious system. He will demand allegiance, and his government will not allow commerce to occur outside of those who will receive a representation or mark of that surrender. One set of comments that I featured on The Meeting House was from Jim Garlow, heard on the Garlow Perspective on Faith Radio, the co-founder of the ministry Wellversed, who offered this perspective on the threat of globalism and how Christians can view the threat. Globalism is evil. Globalism is anti-Christ. It's anti-God. It's anti-good. It's anti-righteousness, period. World Economic Forum is for world domination. It's dangerous. Those who attend it can be duped by it. I believe in the right individual sovereignty of nations, the value of that. When Trudeau, Prime Minister Trudeau in Canada, suddenly turned Canada into Cuba overnight and confiscated private property by freezing the bank accounts of people who had given as low as $50 to the truckers. By the way, we had the privilege of interviewing truckers and many of the pastors embedded with that movement. That was a godly, righteous, holy movement. They were highly sophisticated, highly organized, very smart people that did what they did. I'm not saying everybody was a believer, a Jesus follower. I'm not saying every action was perfect, but I'm saying overarchingly, that was a remarkable move of God in Canada that spurred something globally against this globalism, which is good. But when Trudeau revoked the Constitution, in effect, became a dictator, he became little Cuba. And and now there's even pastors in solitary confinement up there. It's, It's like a Soviet Union, practically. And when he did that, He did that with the blessing of the World Economic Forum had made him the poster child for economic passports. They were so happy what he did. But people made a run on the banks. The banks screamed, hey, stop this. Get over that. World Economic Forum's view was, I am told, I am told, it was, hey, you pushed too far too quickly. We've had a reaction from Canadians and people around the globe. you got to backtrack. So he revoked it after a few days, not because he didn't want to be dictator, He was. He's totally in the wrong, and he's vicious, and he's vile. He did it because they pushed too hard, and enough people rose up. They knew they were going to lose this in the public relations battle and maybe even in other ways. The the globalism of our nation has had three huge upsets recently in their plan and their strategy. Number one was the election of Donald Trump. Number two, it was the rejection of the coerced uh, uh, COVID vaccinations, masks, etc., as a global phenomenon. People said, enough is enough. We now know you're lying to us. I've had COVID twice, by the way. My first time was serious. It's in mm-hmm. the hospital. Mm-hmm. I, I was that. very, very sick. My second time was only a month and a half ago, and I went through that in a day. And I carry a lot of antibodies. I've been tested with the most sophisticated. I carry a ton of antibodies, 10 times the normal right now, as a, as a matter of fact. 
when I do take COVID as a disease seriously, what I don't take seriously is the manipulation of numbers by government and the overreach of government. And that, that reaction set off, realized the globalists they weren't controlling, and then the third was the Canadian truckers set off a movement most recently that has picked steam up globally and, and so they're, they're, they're knocked back for a little bit and they're saying to Trudeau, we got to cool it a little bit. The peasants are rising up against us. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, and that's the way they, they look at it, it seems. But we're the deplorables. Yeah. The elites yeah. and the deplorables. And so you've, you've got, when you look at the whole COVID situation, and I, I remember reading about analysis of the World Economic Forum that the, this great reset, the, the, the COVID crisis was going to be something that they could use, that they could leverage in order to bring this about. It was an indicator that pe perhaps people's mindsets were that they would be willing to give up their, their freedoms and that they would be willing to bow the knee to these, these governmental officials that were placing mandates upon them. And it, it look, and it looks like that they miscalculated and then that manifested itself in the Canadian trucker situation. It's like, okay, fool me once, it, you know, it's on you. Fool me twice, it's on me. And so perhaps that's what we have, but there's, a, there's another one coming down the pike, I'm sure. Oh, absolutely. We hear all kinds of reports. I don't know which ones to believe. Jim Garlow with comments on the number 10 topic of 2022 impacting the Christian community. The rise of globalism presents challenges for Christians. The number nine topic, the participation of biological males in girls' sports advances, yet challenged. This year, not only was there a seeming advancement in the promotion of transgenderism, which is a rejection of God's created order and his plan for sexuality, but there was welcome pushback on several fronts, with Christian organizations involved in the opposition to this dangerous agenda. One area of concern had to do with biological boys identifying as female, competing against girls in sporting events. While there has been quite a bit of legislative activity on the state level across the U.S. to curb this trend, Nevertheless, a federal appeals court, the Second Circuit, toward year's end upheld the policy of a governing body over youth sports in the state of Connecticut, allowing male athletes to compete against females. Prior to that ruling, following oral arguments in the case, I had the opportunity to chat with Christiana Kiefer, senior counsel with Alliance Defending Freedom, who offered this insight. Well, I represent four brave female athletes, all of whom were track and field runners in the state of Connecticut during high school. My clients are Selena Soul, Chelsea Mitchell, Alana Smith, and Ashley Nicoletti. Well, starting in 2017, the Connecticut Association that governs athletics in the state started to allow first one and then two male athletes to compete in the girls' category in girls' track and field. And it had a widespread and devastating impact on girls across the state. These two male athletes together won 15 women's state championship titles over the course of just three years. They set 17 new individual meet records, and they prevented girls from advancing from one level of competition to the next level of competition more than 85 times. So you can imagine mm. that just two males alone had such a widespread devastating impact on female athletes across the state. And for my clients specifically, you know, four times client Chelsea Mitchell was the fastest girl in a statewide championship race 
And yet she walked away being deprived of a gold medal and of the publicity and recognition that she deserved because a male athlete took it instead. My client, Felina, failed to advance from one level of competition to the next because two male athletes were bumped her down in placements and eliminated her from competing in her own race. My client, Alana, also um, failed to be recognized for her accomplishments. You know, as a freshman, she made it to one of the highest levels of high school track, New England Regionals, but she wasn't recognized as the runner-up in that event, which would have been quite an accomplishment. Instead, she was bumped down to a lower ranking, and the same thing with my client, Ashley. So this, is, this went on for several years across the state, devastated women's sports. My brave clients reached out to their, their school administrators, to their coaches, to even lawmakers and Title IX coordinators saying, somebody help us. Would somebody you know, fix this policy? It's not fair. It deprives girls of athletic opportunities. And unfortunately, no one would listen or help. So with the help of Alliance Defending Freedom, these four brave female athletes filed a federal lawsuit back in 2020 challenging this Connecticut policy and saying, look, this deprives girls and women of equal athletic opportunities, something that was promised to them under Title IX. And so you had a district court that obviously rejected your arguments. Well, we'll talk about that in just a moment, but I do want you to address, if you will, the legal aspect, what is ADF contending and what are these young ladies contending with respect to the, the laws at play here? Well, 50 years ago, we passed, or Congress passed, Title IX, which is a federal law that initially was, was passed to stop sex discrimination against women and girls in education. But in the intervening years, it's really come to be synonymous with protecting athletic opp opportunities for women and girls. You know, the whole reason we have women's sports as a separate category is because we recognize, and it's right, to recognize in law and policy that males and females are different. And if we want a future where girls can be on the podium and showcase their talents, earn those college scholarship opportunities and those, those championship titles, then we have to protect the integrity of women's sports as a separate category. So our argument is that by Connecticut allowing males to come in and dominate the girls' category and take away opportunities from my clients, Connecticut's Athletic Association has violated Title IX. Mm. Christiana Kiefer of Alliance Defending Freedom commenting on the number nine topic of 2022, participation of biological males in girls' sports advances yet challenged. A further note, there was a public comment period that ended in mid-September about the possibility of the U.S. Department of Education's consideration of redefining Title IX, which was instituted 50 years ago to provide greater educational opportunities for women, including in the area of sports. The consideration includes the possibility of redefining sex to include sexual orientation and gender identity. And in a case related to the transgender agenda, the 11th Circuit Court of Appeals ruled that, according to Alliance Defending Freedom, quote, separating school bathrooms based on biological sex passes constitutional muster and comports with Title IX. The number eight topic in the top ten topics of 2022 from the Meeting House, pro-life centers face violence in light of the Dobbs ruling. 
There was quite a bit of anticipation in advance of the U.S. Supreme Court's ruling in the Dobbs decision. People on both sides of the abortion issue recognized that there was a real possibility that the majority of justices would not only uphold the Mississippi pro-life law that was being challenged before the high court, but use the decision in that case as an instrument through which Roe v. Wade would be overturned. We know that did occur. But a few weeks before the decision was announced, a document that was described as a draft opinion by Justice Alito was leaked. A number of abortion supporters used that occasion to unleash violence on pro-life pregnancy centers and churches who support the sanctity of life in accordance with the Bible. One of those centers was Compass Care Pregnancy Services based in Rochester, New York, with three pregnancy centers in the state, including one in Buffalo, which suffered extensive damage. CEO of the pro-life ministry, Compass Care, James Harden, joined me in August following the rebuilding and the expansion of the Buffalo Center. Here are some of his comments. The church and the people of God in Buffalo rallied together and rebuilt that facility in 52 days. And we opened on Monday. Wow. We're, we, we have an absolutely stunning display, humbling display of generosity, of kindness, of fighting spirit. We didn't lose a single, we didn't lose a single nurse. Nobody, nobody, we didn't lose a single patient hour. In fact, the very day that we were firebombed, we had to reroute our patients that we're, we're going to see to our Rochester facility 70 miles away. It was a hardship for them, but we did it. And then the very next day, we were up and running in an alternate location. We had three offers three offers from the generous people in Buffalo saying, come and serve patients at our facility. We, we were up and running. We didn't miss a single patient hour, a single patient appointment. It was absolutely wonderful. They wanted to shut us down, James Revenge, but we didn't. And not only did we, we do the ribbon cutting ceremony on Monday with, uh, with, you know, so many wonderful people, but we actually did a groundbreaking ceremony. We're, we're not just, we didn't just rebuild. We rebuilt, we rebuilt better and we rebuilt, we're rebuilding bigger now. Because there's an influx of patients coming in from out of state, from these conservative states, to get their abortion. Abortion tourism has begun. And uh, so, you know, on, on, Ju- on June 24th, with, with the release of the Dobbs case reversing Roe versus Wade, uh, the abortion industry changed overnight. Thousands of abortion appointments were canceled. And the abortion industry had to pivot to a, a new business model. It would be similar to what would happen if a Ford Motor Company was told by the government, hey, you can't have dealerships in 30 states tomorrow. Well, that would be a catastrophic catastrophic existential kind of threat to their corporation, right? So they'd have to they'd have to pivot to a different business model to stay alive. That's exactly what the abortion industry is facing. So they're encouraging women to travel to New York and, and California and Illinois to get their abortions or get these dangerous chemical abortion drugs sent to them in the mail. And so we're expanding. We're, we're, we now have the opportunity with our global telehealth partner, Let's Talk Interactive, to give 650 pregnancy centers the 21st century telehealth tools to be able to reach and serve every woman in America before she travels to get an abortion and before she goes online to get these dangerous chemical abortion drugs sent to her uh, in, in the mail. It's absolutely one of the most exciting moment because we, we can now per- basically compete with a billion-dollar abortion complex for the first time since 1973, and that's what they're afraid of, and I think that's what's animating their, their violence. So when you look at the state of the pro-life movement and where we are heading, how would you describe it? Well, the state of the pro-life movement is is poised to, to basically take back control of women's reproductive health in America and provide true informed consent again and provide true care, true ethical medical care. Um, it's, it's, again, the most exciting moment in the history of the pro-life movement. And we're, we're being attacked. There, there's all-out war has been declared on pro, peaceful pro-life pregnancy centers 
Um, but you know, someone has once said that you're not going to get the flak unless you're flying over the target. Well, that, that's what's exactly what's happening. We have the ability to actually um, see women all across this country. Every woman in America has, has we have now have the opportunity to reach and serve before she gets an abortion. If we take advantage of this moment, the, the abortion industry is pivoting quickly. And I think that the pregnancy centers have an opportunity now um, to get out ahead of that. And, and with these 21st century telehealth tools and, and marketing uh, to reach and serve these women. So, um, you know, people, a lot of people thought that abortion was going to be outlawed with the reversal of Roe versus Wade. But as you described earlier in our conversation, Bob, uh, it just moves abortion to and concentrates it into abortion hub states like New York and California, where they're going to be paying women for their travel expenses and for their uh, for their abortion procedures uh, out of taxpayer money. Uh, so, you know, we, we've got an opportunity to expand infrastructure, uh, not only in the abortion hub states to, to serve women when they travel here uh, from conservative states, but we also have an opportunity to deliver the tools, 21st century telehealth tools to pregnancy centers all across the country in conservative states and in the abortion hub states as well uh, to, to reach and serve these women uh, in their moment of crisis. And we're going to shorten that service cycle from, from 24 hours. But a woman gets a positive home pregnancy test, 24 hours later typically she, she wants information or she wants a service appointment. We can shorten that cycle from 24 hours down to 24 minutes or 24 seconds. I mean, it's just that powerful, uh, hmm. time, you know, to get to serve her, to get a nurse to serve her. James Harden of Compass Care Pregnancy Centers comments relative to the number eight topic of 2022: pro-life centers face violence in light of Dobbs' ruling. Well, the number seven topic of 2022 impacting the Christian community has to do with Christian ministries responding to suffering in Ukraine. The Russian invasion of Ukraine was certainly among the most, if not the most, impactful story of 2022. And as I traveled with the Faith Radio team to Nashville for the National Religious Broadcasters Convention, it was apparent that the invasion, as well as possible Christian responses to it, was on the minds of ministry leaders with whom I spoke. One of the ministries with a presence in the region is Mission Eurasia. Now, following that NRB convention, I had the chance during 2022 to talk with Sergei Rakuba, president of Mission Eurasia. And several months later, I connected with ministry director for the Unreached People Group's initiative for Mission Eurasia, Don Parsons. He joined me from Krakow, Poland. Here now is part of that conversation. Most of Mission Eurasia's staff is Ukrainian. And uh, when the war first broke out, we realized that we needed to evacuate our families as quickly as possible. So Mission Eurasia mobilized our team to get out of the country as quick as they could. Now you have to understand, though, that men were not allowed to leave the country, which was which, while extremely hard and dividing of families for the sake of the ministry and what we were going to need to do, that was all right. But they sent out their wives. They sent out their kids. Um, they came over here to Poland, and um, they stayed in country. What did they do in country? They mobilized churches. They, uh, churches were very interested in trying to find ways to help. So we're talking Ukrainian churches, Mission Eurasia, with our years of experience in ministry networks that were already in place, was able to mobilize hundreds of churches. We've had thousands of church volunteers working alongside of us in Ukraine. So we set up these hubs in the Western Ukraine, shipped food in from Poland, received at those hubs, and then through local churches, sent out throughout all of Ukraine, especially into those hot, you know, those hot beds, those hard, difficult places. 
Um, but in the midst of doing all of that, going back to what you were alluding to just a moment ago, when we first started about a month and a half in, we got word just that day that the city of Erpin was being liberated by Ukrainian troops that our main headquarters, the place where we've done uh, really trained thousands of people, housed thousands of people, fed thousands of people in our cafeteria that's there in our office and our warehouse of Bibles, we found out that that building had been destroyed in crossfire. Uh, then we went on to find out that Russian soldiers had taken Bibles out of our warehouse while they were on our property and began to burn those Bibles and those New Testaments. We have pictures of Gospels of John and New Testaments that were scorched by flames. Um, it was a setback morally for us, emotionally for us, but we realized that ministry isn't a place. Ministry is the people of God serving, and mm -hmm. that has continued. To this very day and uh, we continue to move forward with lots of zeal our folks are tired but continuing to try to serve uh, the ukrainian people and don i was just thinking back we're now somewhere around the four month maybe even four month mm -hmm. mark a greater than four month mark yep. since the russian invasion of ukraine was started and there have been uh, of course there was a lot of coverage at the very beginning and now you still see coverage but it's not as what we might call top of mind as it was back in late February and even into March and through the spring. So what are the, as you see it, what is the status of the overall conflict now? Mm. Well, to the first part of what you said there, the war started on February 24th. So in terms of months, we're going to be exactly four months into this war. And it's looking more and more like an, like it's going to be an ongoing conflict. Russia doesn't seem to be showing any signs of pulling back on what they're, on what they're doing. Uh, they're continuing to go into new cities, trying to take them, bomb them, just carpet bombing, it seems to me, um, just the atrocities that Russia is is bringing upon the Ukrainian people continues, and it's it's really horrible. Uh, the flow of refugees uh, internally displaced in Ukraine, and here I am in Poland. Uh, you've got the refugees that are that continue to come out of Ukraine. Uh, it's still a major issue. We still have millions. Uh, some estimate as many as 4 million Ukrainian refugees still here in Poland. Yes, some have gone back to places that have been liberated, uh, even though that's not highly recommended. So you have some flow going back in, but a lot's still coming out. And it's looking more and more like this is going to be a long, long, drawn-out war. And so that's causing us to take a step back and say, okay, Mission Eurasia, what are we going to do? How are we going to serve the immediate needs, physical, um, food, hygiene products, diapers, uh, those kinds of things. Those needs continue to be there uh, in Ukraine and here in Poland. Um, but housing is, is becoming a big issue. And of course, trauma. Don Parsons of Mission Eurasia commenting relative to Christian ministries responding to suffering in Ukraine. Well, the number six topic on the top 10 topics of 2022 impacting the Christian community. There have been abundant developments surrounding the United Methodist Church over the past 12 months. The denomination that had been wrestling with the authority of Scripture manifested in a departure by some 
from the biblical teaching on homosexuality was facing a vote on protocols for an amicable separation, with churches choosing to leave the denomination and choosing to affiliate elsewhere or become non-denominational. When it was announced that the anticipated vote would not occur last year, the formation of a new Methodist denomination, the Global Methodist Church, took place in early May. In September, I had the opportunity to chat with Lester Spencer, lead pastor of Montgomery St. James Church and president of the Alabama West Florida chapter of the Wesleyan Covenant Association, and Keith Boyette, transitional connectional coordinating officer for the Global Methodist Church. They shared an update on developments. Here now is some material from that conversation. For decades, there's been conflict in the United Methodist Church about the authority of scripture and human sexuality and marriage, et cetera. And so as a part of that journey, um, the bishops called for a called annual, a general conference of the United Methodist Church in 2019 to try to settle that issue once and for all. Uh, the traditional plan was part partially passed and that was a plan that Keith actually helped uh, develop and design. Um, but that was a very controversial 2019 general conference. After that, Keith became a part of a group of clergy and laity and bishops from around the world that uh, put together a protocol, as you call it, we'll shorten it, just call it the protocol. The protocol. And the protocol was a piece of legislation that was going to go before the general conference in 2020 that would have brought a peaceful, graceful way to, for the United Methodist Church uh, to uh, allow separations uh, to happen. So to allow those who were more Orthodox, traditional Wesleyan Methodist to uh, exit the denomination. And uh, unfortunately, COVID hit. So 2020 General Conference got postponed and rescheduled for 2021. Then it was postponed again because of COVID to 2022. And then it was finally postponed again to 2024. And so the protocol has lost steam. Many people thought it would have passed in 2020, but it lost a lot of steam as General Conference kept being delayed over and over again. And now we're at this place where um, the there it seems the protocol doesn't really have a chance of passing in 2024. So once the uh, General Conference was postponed again from 2022 to 2024, the Global Methodist Church went ahead and launched on May 1st of this year. And I'll let Keith pick it up from there because he's been right in the middle of all of this uh, from the protocol to the launch of the GMC. Go right ahead. The baton has been passed. All right. Uh, <laughs> glad, to so glad to have you along. Well, it's wonderful to be here. I'm enjoying being in Montgomery today. But uh, I would just say, uh, you know, our hope was that with the protocol, there would be a process of amicable separation, but churches and leaders are tired of being in the midst of this continuing conflict, which is hurting our witness to the world, our ability to make disciples. And so we made the decision as the Global Methodist Church to go ahead and begin operations May 1st so that churches that are in the process of withdrawing from the United Methodist Church have a home where they can land, where they have the freedom to uh, preach the gospel in accordance with Holy Scripture, uh, stand resolutely for biblical values, uh, offer the good news of what Jesus has done for us to a world that desperately needs that message. 
Um, the time is now. The time is not for us to continue what is really an internal battle that uh, has only resulted in decline for the United Methodist Church. And so the Global Methodist Church, is it, it is global. We have churches around the world that are a part of the Global Methodist Church, uh, churches here in the United States, and those number of churches are growing. But what's happening is that um, because of the cumbersome process that has to be followed for a church to separate, it takes time. And so churches are coming to the Global Methodist Church in various waves. Um, and we, we began with the small wave as the first few churches came through. And now we're in a season where a significant number of churches are moving through this process. By the end of the year, we anticipate we'll have over a thousand churches just here in the United States. By the end of 2023, we estimate that there'll be uh, several thousand, three to 4,000 in the U.S., and tens of thousands of churches outside the U.S. that will be part of the Global Methodist Church. Keith Boyette of the Global Methodist Church and Lester Spencer of Montgomery's St. James Church and the Alabama West Florida Chapter of the Wesleyan Covenant Association. Commenting on the number six topic of 2022, a new Methodist denomination forms and churches depart the United Methodist Church. This is the Intersection Podcast, a weekly production of The Meeting House, and you can find out more by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through that Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center. That's where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection Podcast and the Meeting House program. You'll also find links to the Intersection Podcast, to the Media Center, as well as the Apple Podcast feed. Plus, you can find a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel where you can watch video from a number of Meeting House guests. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. The other is The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. The website address is meetinghouseonline.info, or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. You can also find conversations from the Meeting House program through the Faith Radio app at a variety of podcast platforms, including Amazon Music, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, TuneIn, and other podcast platforms. On this special edition of the Intersection Podcast, I'm reviewing the top 10 topics of 2022 impacting the Christian community. Before I move on to the number five topic, I want to review what we've heard so far on the podcast. The number 10 topic, the rise of globalism, presents challenges for Christians. Number nine, the participation of biological males in girls' sports advances yet challenged. The number eight topic, pro-life centers face violence in light of the Dobbs ruling. Number seven, Christian ministries respond to suffering in Ukraine. And the number six topic, a new Methodist denomination forms, churches depart the United Methodist Church. Well, the number five topic now of 2022, there were many questions going into the midterm elections last year. It was widely thought that there might be a shift in the composition of Congress, especially in light of economic concerns. Plus, the U.S. Supreme Court decision overturning Roe v. Wade was considered to be a motivational factor for some voters. 
While a number of pro-life candidates were victorious in the 2022 midterms, there were five state ballot initiatives dealing with the life issue, and the pro-life position was defeated in all five. I had the chance to talk with Eric Stackelbeck, news correspondent for Trinity Broadcasting Network and host of the Watchman program, who brought analysis and commentary in the aftermath of the 2022 midterm elections from a Christian worldview perspective. Here are some of his comments. Certainly, I think people are going to have more and more a choice to make Christians in these blue states. Do we stay or do we go? Do we stay and stand strong and try and fight back against the secular socialistic onslaught, or do we go to a red state, get around like-minded people, and, and, you know, continue the fight from there? I think, secondly, Generation Z, so-called young people in this country under the age of 28, uh, voted in large numbers, number one, but number two, voted overwhelmingly for candidates who do not represent Christian values, voted for candidates who are fiercely pro-abortion, pro-trans, and really anti-biblical values. There's no other way to say it. And young people in this country voted overwhelmingly for those sorts of candidates. And if they're coming out in big numbers, that's a problem. And it's a problem that this generation, this younger generation, has more and more poll after poll shows has really, I don't want to say wholesale abandoned God, but belief in God is at just record low levels among that generation, belief in the Bible, and the TikTok generation, they've been called, they've got a steady barrage on social media mm-hmm. uh, from the entertainment industry, in the public schools, in the universities, a steady diet of anti-Christian, uh, left-wing, Marxist, so-called woke ideology that they're being fed, and I think that showed at the ballots on Tuesday. And so you have this generation, as you mentioned, turning out in large numbers, but voting in a way that is not consistent with the Christian values, the Christian principles that we hold dear. So as we continue to talk about the impact of this election and really squarely discuss how this impacts the body of Christ, how it affects the church, when we look at the number of young people that, and again, we have this indication this is going the you know, the opposite direction. We've got media, entertainment. You mentioned that. Now we say mainstream media. The Gen Zers, I, I wouldn't say, would be your your most prolific connoisseurs of so-called mainstream media. But as right. you pointed out, they're the TikTok generation. They have their own networks of social media. Yeah. And my, my, they are very influential for people in their, for others in their generation, right? No doubt. No doubt, Bob. TikTok and Snapchat, Instagram, all, all of these places, YouTube, of course, uh, all of these social media platforms are, number one, in many cases, censoring conservative and Christian points of view. Uh, But secondly, there is a steady barrage, especially on TikTok, a steady barrage of, no other way to say it, propaganda directed at young people. And we cannot also underestimate, social media is one problem with Generation Z, you can't underestimate the impact in the schools. This is one of the major fights of our time for parents right now. What is happening in America's public schools, which 
left-wing anti-biblical folks are attempting to turn into indoctrination centers. That is not an exaggeration. Hey, if you look hmm. at last November, Glenn Youngkin, who won the governorship in Virginia, he won that election largely on the back of fighting critical race theory in the schools, fighting the transgender madness in the schools that kids are being brainwashed with. So I think the social media platforms, uh, the schools can't be underestimated. And this has become a major, major problem. And of course, the music, music industry, TV, film, what's being barraged at people as well. So it's a real problem. And I think as followers of Jesus, we're going to have to continue to try to form alternate platforms uh, that have a biblical message. And there's a lot of folks who are talking more and more about this. There needs to be some big-time investors uh, who are investing, whether it's film, music, TV, social media, with a message that can resonate with Christians and reach folks with a Christian message done in a very in, in a way with very high quality. I think we're going to need more counter-programming to continue to reach young people and just be authentic. If one thing seems apparent about younger folks today, they want authenticity. They want people you know, who who aren't uh, kind of putting on a mirage, who are, who are real, speaking from the heart, who are true, who are real, and no one was more true and real than Jesus. Eric Stackelbeck of the Trinity Broadcasting Network here on the Intersection Podcast, commenting on the number five topic of 2022, midterm elections provide clear challenges and choices for Christians. Moving on now to the number four topic of 2022, In 2015, the U.S. Supreme Court, as it's been said, quote, created a right to so-called same-sex marriage. At the time, several justices on the high court believed that the ruling was wrongly decided. Justice Clarence Thomas even mentioned that ruling and several others in his opinion in the Dobbs decision, stating that the court's findings in Obergefell should be readdressed. Well, political opportunists in Washington saw an opening to legislatively confirm what was previously a judicial decision. In what initially might have seemed to be a show vote to affirm same-sex marriage was actually legislation that not only strengthened that issue, but posed threats to people and organizations who oppose same-sex marriage on moral and religious grounds. The House and Senate both passed the Respect for Marriage Act that was signed by the president. Mary Beth Waddell, Director of Federal Affairs for Family and Religious Liberty for Family Research Council, was a meeting house guest and provided analysis of the bill. She highlighted religious liberty concerns pointed out by FRC and like-minded organizations. Here now are some of her comments. You saw back in July, uh, as you pointed out, this bill is unnecessary. Uh, There was no threat to Obergefell. There was no threat uh, to same-sex marriages or the ability for same-sex couples to marry. Um, none of that was in any kind of jeopardy. Um, and But you saw in the wake of the overturning of Roe with the Dobbs decision, this sort of uh, backlash, you know, if you will, sort of glomming on to this marriage issue um, and the language of Clarence Thomas's uh, concurrence uh, to try and paint this picture as if there was a threat when he was simply pointing out the problems with the legal theory of substantive due process, um, which is the legal theory that a number of these cases were actually uh, decided under. 
and he himself is in an interracial marriage. And, you know, many of the proponents, particularly in the early days of July before the first House vote, were not just mentioning same-sex marriages needing protection, but also interracial marriages needing protection, that they were in jeopardy. But he himself is in an interracial marriage, so he's not actually going to put something in an opinion that is going to undermine his own marriage. Um, And so that sort of begs the question, then what's really going on here? What is this really about? Um, And because it doesn't really change the status quo at all, uh, as Senator Lee uh, very well pointed out, uh, for same-sex marriage, what it does change the status quo for is uh, for religious liberty and for people of faith. Um, And so it's just continuing uh, and increasing uh, those instances of litigious and litigation attacks on folks that we've seen, uh, and I think we'll continue uh, to see those. Um, in the future. So what did Family Research Council and other organizations find so insufficient about the the ill-fated attempts to put a religious liberty component into the Respect for Marriage Act? The first part of the language simply restates what's in current law. Um, it says, you know, there are pre-existing religious liberty and conscience rights in the Constitution and federal law and these people and organizations still have access to those. Well, that has not meant anything insofar as it has not prevented these litigious attacks and drawing people into litigation uh, for three, five, seven, ten years. Even if there's victory uh, in the courts, like Jack Phillips had, he was sued again within like three, four days and is still having to go through that litigation and proving and his having to bring up his religious liberty rights and his conscience rights and use that as a defense and taking years in the process uh, with a real human cost, particularly if you look at the um, adoption and foster care space. You know, when Philadelphia decided to kick out Catholic charities uh, in the wake of an emergent need for foster homes, There was a real human cost to women and children and families in need um, because you had a foster parent of the year's home that was empty because it didn't matter that there were 28 other options for adoption and foster care agencies. It didn't matter that Catholic Charities would provide a referral. It didn't matter that Catholic Charities had never actually denied anyone any service. It was the city wanted to attack them for their religion. and so those are the kinds of things that you're going to continue to see and that this language doesn't provide any protection for. The second uh, piece of language on this looks good on its face in that it talks about these nonprofit organizations. It talks about uh, churches and synagogues and religious education institutions. But if you look at the actual language of the protection, it's so narrow. They have to these individuals uh, or these entities would have to prove their principal purpose is the study, practice, or advancement of religion. So they have to be religious enough. And then if they're religious enough, the only protection they have is from not having to perform an actual wedding itself, which is not where we're seeing this litigation. It's not Mm -hmm. over, this person will not marry me. It's over everything else surrounding that. And so clearly that's not going to provide any protection um, for religious liberty. 
Mary Beth Waddell of Family Research Council commenting relative to the number four topic of 2022 impacting the Christian community. Lawmakers affirm same-sex marriage and endanger religious freedom. Well, the number three topic of 2022 now, attempts to change one's sex or gender are at the root a rejection of God's created order. When someone says that a gender is assigned, one must ask, who has assigned it? Certainly not the doctor nor the parents, but a person's sex is determined biologically, ultimately by his or her creator, who has ordained two genders, according to Scripture. The state of Alabama, in its 2022 regular session of the legislature, passed a bill that would prevent minors from receiving treatments and surgeries intended to help them, quote, change his or her gender. The bill also included a section that would prevent inappropriate sexual material from being taught to young children in the state's classrooms. The new law was challenged, and a portion of it temporarily restricted from going into effect. From writer and commentator Matt Walsh's exposure of the gender change surgeries being performed at a Nashville hospital to detransitioners speaking out about their experiences, the gender change industry certainly had a day of reckoning during 2022. By the way, detransitioners are individuals who have been duped in order to try to surgically change their sex only to find out that they had sustained permanent damage based on an empty promise. Brandon Showalter, senior investigative reporter for the Christian Post, has done incredible work on examining the issue motivated by a biblical worldview. In a November conversation on The Meeting House, he introduced the podcast series Generation Indoctrination Inside the Transgender Battle. He had previously been on the program in September offering analysis of the overall issue. From that conversation, here now is Brandon Showalter. Well, the detransitioners are starting to make more and more noise these days because there are enough of them where they're sort of putting up their, putting their head above the parapet, if you will, mm. uh, because of this great medical scandal, the medicalization of gender. Um, so it's there because of this experiment that's been perpetrated on so many people, hormonally and surgically, and the damage that's doing to their bodies. There are more and more now that are raising their voices. I'm seeing increased media coverage even this year where they're starting to come forward and say, you know, this was held out as the solution to my problems, but it actually didn't do me any good. It actually harmed me further. Uh, you know, basically you don't cut the, mo- you don't cut the body to heal the mind, Bob. You just, that just doesn't work. It's not medically mm-hmm. or ethically sound to do that. And so um, it is just, uh, I, we're starting to see, that group of people who have been the victims of this medical scandal uh, speak the truth. And they're, they're starting to get a hearing in alternative media. We've covered them some at the Christian Post. The New York Post did a profile of, I think, two or three of them a few months ago, uh, fairly recently. Uh, I think they are really going to change the narrative of what's going on in these gender clinics around the country uh, because their bodies bear the scars, literally. Uh, and so we're going to, I think we can only expect that to increase as more and more people come forward about how they were harmed. Well, let's look into a particular article that you wrote for the Christian Post dated August the 29th. The headline is, yes, trans surgeries are being done on minors. Here's proof. And this really is intended to counter what you hear from so many medical professionals, if you will, the academics in the medical profession who are saying, well, this is something that is either not being done or it is 
uncommon and this is this is something that is is being denied and it is certainly taking place and it dates back a number of different years and now we're seeing the culmination of it understandably you have those that are perpetrating it that want to keep it under wraps but it's something that and you uncovered a number of different instances and i'd like for you at this point to give us some examples of this this agenda actually moving forward to try to perform these surgeries and treatments that are detrimental yes well i got so frustrated and angry when i saw the mass media interference running for children's (laughs) hospitals in recent weeks where there were these blanket denials or minimizations of these disfiguring trans surgeries being done on minors. I don't think any of these surgeries are ethical, Bob, to adults or children, but it's especially egregious when it's done to people who can't give consent because we know that their brains aren't even developed until I think age 25, according to the consensus among neuroscientists about when the brain stops developing. And so we recognize that you know children can't even vote until they're 18 or join the military you know, drink alcohol until they're 21 and all these kinds of other safety measures that we have for minors that somehow with this, we allow children to stay with their parents, but you know, really that, that shouldn't even be allowed either, um, to, to disfigure their bodies and to sterilize them. And uh, I knew it wasn't true because I actually know someone who as a minor, uh, I, I know a mom rather, and her daughter ran away to a liberal state where as a minor on an outpatient basis, she got her breasts amputated and all of her reproductive system cut out at age 17. And I also knew of several peer-reviewed medical journals where the gender clinicians and doctors involved in these sorted procedures themselves say that they had done these operations on people under the age of 18. So I figured what I should do is, and you mentioned that article that is there in the Christian Post from August 29th, is just collate a list and give all the citations and the hyperlinks and quote them. I mean, don't take my word for it. They have themselves admitted that they have done these radical disfiguring surgeries like vaginoplasties, double mastectomies. Uh, (laughs) They've done all all these kinds of really brutal stuff on minors, uh, hysterectomies, uh, and the proof's in the pudding. Just, Just take a look at the article and read The Lancet, the Journal of Clinical Medicine, the Journal of Sexual Medicine, Obstetrics and Gynecology several journals from recent years, this is within the last 10 years, where it's it's right there, plain as day. So again, don't take my word for it, just read them in their own words. Brendan Showalter of the Christian Post with comments corresponding to the number three topic of 2022, visibility about harm from gender treatment and surgeries grows. Well, the number two topic of 2022 now, The U.S. Supreme Court, while not only overturning the almost 50-year-old ruling Roe v. Wade in the Dobbs case, issued three decisions that are directly related to religious freedom. In all three, the court strengthened religious freedom rights. I had covered the three rulings in a front-room commentary for the Meeting House program. Here are some highlights from the blog site. In one case, Shirtlift v. Boston, the right of a Christian group to have a Christian flag flown in a special celebration at City Hall in Boston was upheld. Another case, Carson v. Macon, restored the rights of parents to send their children to religious schools in a special program in the state of Maine. 
Then there was the case of Kennedy v. Bremerton School District, in which the court ruled that a football coach who had walked to midfield to pray following games and had been terminated was within his constitutional rights to participate in that free exercise of religion. It was announced recently that Coach Kennedy will be returning to Washington State and reinstated to his former football coaching position. Stephanie Taub, senior counsel for First Liberty Institute, joined the meeting house to address the ruling in favor of Coach Joe Kennedy from Bremerton, Washington. Here now is some material from that conversation. It has certainly been a long journey for Coach Kennedy, and First Liberty has been there with him um, through it all. So we are, and, and now finally, we have this landmark victory for religious liberty, which makes it all worth it. So we represent Coach Joe Kennedy. He is a 20-year Marine veteran and turned high school football coach. And from his very first day before coaching, he, he made this commitment to God that he would say a knee or drop to his knees and say a prayer um, of Thanksgiving, win or lose after every game. And that's what he did for years. And some over time, some of the players saw what he was doing and asked to join. And he told them that it was a free country and they could do what they wanted. Um, and so then after a compliment got the attention of the school district administrators, they started an investigation and they told him he had to stop his prayer practice and then they went so far as to say that he couldn't pray at all, even by himself, because he was visible to students. And that's how the lawsuit started. And this has been up and down from all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court, sit back down to the lower court level. It was accepted for this term of the U.S. Supreme Court. So the ruling handed down this week. Tell us just a bit about what the justices had to say. It was another one of these six to three decisions, very similar to the religious liberty case that First Liberty was involved in. The ruling was handed down last week, the Carson v. Macon case. So share with us some of the, the major points made by the justices in this ruling. Yeah, so this is a very important ruling for religious liberty. So it clarifies that what the school district did here was a violation of both the free speech clause and the free exercise clause of the Constitution. And so essentially, when a, a school district cannot censor private religious speech of its employees, simply because it's religious. Um, so, so often school districts operate under this mistaken understanding of the Constitution where they think they have to scrub the campus of anything that's even remotely mm. religious. And this can lead them to go too far and infringe on the private religious rights of teachers or students. Um, but here the Supreme Court um, clarified that no, that's, that's not the requirement. The requirement is this respectful um, tolerance of different points of views. And you can't, um, so if a, a coach like Coach Kennedy can take 30 seconds to engage in some other kind of speech, then he can take 30 seconds for prayer. It's a pretty modest ruling for Coach Kennedy, but it has sweeping implications across the country because there has been this anti-religious hostility that has been so prevalent for decades. And so this is truly a really landmark victory. Comment, if you would, on what you see as these broad implications of this particular ruling moving forward. So the Supreme Court, they really clarified that this 
uh, a bad case from decades ago is no longer good law. And so it's a case called Lemon, and that Lemon test has been a, a burden on religious believers for so long. It has um, encouraged school district administrators especially to look at religion with um, skepticism and hostility and has directly led to the censorship um, of, of religious private expression in schools. So that test is no longer good law. The court has returned us to a history and tradition um, interpretation of the Establishment Clause, which will really, which will really afford more uh, respect for people of faith. It'll make sure that people of faith don't have to uh, go out of their way to hide their religious identity as if it's something shameful from, from students. And so this is a massive cultural shift in the way that we think about religion in schools. Um, and so we hope that this implication will actually be affected to re respect the religious liberty rights of teachers and stu students across the country. Stephanie Taub from First Liberty commenting on the number two topic of 2023. Religious freedom victories at the U.S. Supreme Court include vindication for a football coach praying at midfield after games. Now, this term of the U.S. Supreme Court features the 303 creative case in which a graphic artist and web designer is challenging a Colorado law that would force her to support same-sex marriage contrary to her religious beliefs. Before I share about the number one topic of 2022 impacting the Christian community, I want to go back over what I've covered so far on this special edition of the Intersection podcast. The top 10 topics of 2022. Number 10, the rise of globalism presents challenges for Christians. Number 9, participation of biological males in girls' sports advances yet challenged. Number 8, pro-life centers face violence in light of the Dobbs ruling. Number seven, Christian ministries respond to suffering in Ukraine. Number six, a new Methodist denomination forms and churches depart the United Methodist Church. Number five, midterm elections provide clear challenges and choices for Christians. Number four, lawmakers affirm so-called same-sex marriage and endanger religious freedom. Number three, the visibility about harm from gender treatment and surgeries grows. Number two, Religious freedom victories at the U.S. Supreme Court include vindication for a football coach praying at midfield after games. Well, the number one topic of 2022, the top story impacting the Christian community, is no doubt the decision by the U.S. Supreme Court in the Dobbs case involving a ban on abortion after 15 weeks, that law out of Mississippi that law out of Mississippi that had been challenged. Five justices took the opportunity to strike down the almost five-decade-old Roe v. Wade ruling, which had resulted in legalized abortion in America. The decision in the Dobbs case returned the question of abortion to the states, pro-life laws that had been passed and put on hold by courts, or trigger laws that would go into effect to ban many abortions and the eventuality of Roe being overturned went into effect. Someone who has worked in the pro-life movement since around the time of the Roe decision joined me with his response on the Meeting House program. He is Chuck Donovan, president of the Charlotte Lozier Institute, the education and research arm of Susan B. Anthony Pro-Life America. Here are some of his comments. I think people were um, a little bit surprised when the, when the draft opinion leaked about a month ago, six weeks ago, I guess it was, uh, that it went as far as to reverse Roe, there, there was certainly a lot of opinion 
among my colleagues after the oral argument last December that the court could simply say, yes, Mississippi's 15-week law is reasonable. Um, but the problem with that was that in order to reach that, the court would have to discard uh, the created framework of Roe versus Wade, which invented this whole trimester system with respect to what laws we could have respecting uh, protecting the unborn. And I think at the end of the day, uh, the, the realists on the court, and I would particularly cite Justice Alito, um, went to the core question is, what basis is there in the Constitution for the justices of the Supreme Court to start uh, writing uh, medical standards, weighing moral issues, and dividing different divisions of pregnancy? It's not the kind of things courts are equipped to do. And of course, uh, terms like viability, uh, things like fetal surgery, uh, ultrasound identification of all sorts of uh, incredible characteristics in the unborn. All of these things were moving the needle medically. And I think the court realized it was not a medical board. There was no constitutional warrant for this. And five of the justices fortunately had courage enough to say, we're going to give this back to the people and their elected representatives to decide. Leading up to this ruling today, I, I think that the wild card was how was the chief justice going to come right. down on this issue? What influence would he try to exert? What could he come up with to try to preserve, quote unquote, the integrity of the court or whatever? And so what yes. do you think was going on with the chief justice? Well, I think he has had a doctrine as long as he's been on the court of deciding and limiting himself to the question scarce squarely before the court. So the question as certified for the Supreme Court's consideration was whether or not a state could protect uh, or have a standard for limiting abortion that was pre-viability. Uh, so they could have answered yes, and that's all he wished to do was answer yes to Mississippi, but reserve judgment for later. I, I think he was... Uh, excessively concerned about the court managing what it thought would be a rough landing with respect to uh, reversing Roe versus Wade. I think the other justices are saying it's been a rough 50-year flight, and this is not the business we should be in in the first place. And if you look at Justice uh, Thomas's concurrence, uh, he goes squarely to the question whether the whole of the court's jurisprudence on what's called substantive due process is correct. And that's uh, the, the tendency in the court's ruling to decide uh, policy questions, very sensitive ones indeed. But uh, I think Justice Thomas more squarely faced the question whether the court has this authority at all or whether the people's elected representatives can decide about things such as pornography, drug use, abortion, uh, social questions that affect the, the health and well-being of individuals as well as communities. Um, the majority of the justices here, I would say, are split between uh, Kavanaugh and uh, perhaps one or two others who just think it's not the court's job. Uh, others, like Justice Alito, think that the courts are, um, are particularly ill-equipped for this and the American people can be trusted to do the right thing. Chuck Donovan of the Charlotte Lozier Institute with his comments relative to the number one topic of 2022 impacting the Christian community from the meeting house, U.S. Supreme Court overturns Roe v. Wade. Well, thanks for joining me for this special edition of the Intersection podcast featuring the top 10 topics of 2022.
You can learn more about The Meeting House by going to meetinghouseonline.info or by visiting the programming section at faithradio.org. Through The Meeting House homepage, you'll find a link to the Media Center. That's where you can go to listen to or download full conversations with recent guests featured on the Intersection podcast and The Meeting House radio program. You can also find links to the podcast to the Media Center, as well as its Apple podcast feed. You can also find a link to the Faith Radio YouTube channel where you can watch video featuring Meeting House guests. Two blogs are accessible. One is The Three with three stories of relevance to the Christian community. There's also The Front Room with devotional thoughts and commentary from the Meeting House. And you can follow me on Twitter and access the Meeting House Facebook page. Again, that website address is meetinghouseonline.info or you can go to the programming section at faithradio.org. Thanks for joining me for this special edition of the Intersection Podcast. I'm Bob Crittenden.